The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing all of us. I just took out my son's winter jacket for the season. It's Patagonia. Most of the jackets in our house are. And I'm a total brand loyalist here. I just love the brand's conviction that we should be buying less and fixing more. Anyhow, the jacket's sleeve is fraying right at the wrist. He played in it too hard, I guess, last season. And so this week, I'm going to bring it back to the store. And they're going to fix it for me. For free. And I think this is really cool. Now, I promise Patagonia isn't paying me to say any of this. It's just something that I've always known about Patagonia, this ethos. Something friends told me, gosh, a couple decades ago and that I like to pass along. When I wear my own Patagonia jacket, it's like I'm signaling my own values to others. Brands have this ability to do this for us, right? They help us connect to each other and make meaning of the culture around us. But most brands, they don't get this right, even when they really, really try. They miss some basic understanding about how culture works. That's what we're gonna talk about today. Our guest is Dr. Marcus Collins, author of For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. Marcus has worked for Apple. He's run digital strategy for Beyonce. Through his work in advertising, he developed strategies that helped solidify the cultural significance of some of our favorite products and people. Now, as a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan's Business School, Marcus teaches how culture influences not only what we like as consumers, but who we are as people. He would say that the person who told me about Patagonia is like me, making me more inclined to buy what they do. Here's more on culture from Marcus. It's the way we translate the world. And as social animals, a lot of it, if you were to be reductive, kind of gets down to that. Like, uh, can I trust you? Yeah. And and are you like me? And if you are like me, then I'm more inclined to feel safe. The psychology literature refers to this as homophily, self-loving, right? We like people who are like ourselves. And culture helps us translate the world so that not only are we able to recognize people like us, but also so that we stay in lockstep with people like us so that people can recognize us as well. So people can see us and know that we are one of them. And collectively, this program for everyday living that culture really provides for us is the most influential external force on human behavior, full stop. And the better we understand that, not only as practitioners, call it marketers, leaders, entrepreneurs, managers, clergy, (laughs) politicians, the better we understand that the more likely we are to not only influence behavior, but also find our people. Yeah. And I think we have to start before culture even with identity, right? What is the interplay between identity and culture? I think identity is the anchor of culture. It's sort of the antecedent 
because we self-identify by a moniker that with it has implicit social connections. And that's sort of the the you know the tip of the spear. It's the the lead bowling pin, as it were. Like you've got to satiate that part. Who am I? Many would argue that you know we spend our lives trying to figure out who we are, because once we know who we are, the world takes shape in a very clear way. And the more uncertain we are about ourselves, the murkier the world becomes. You know, it's just hard to navigate when you don't know yourself. You know, it's the the Shakespeare's quote, uh, quote, to thine own self be true. And if you don't know thine own self, then what is truth, right? right? And what is the meaning of life if you don't know who you are and where you sit? Uh, Jill Avery, she's a, she's a scholar in my field, uh, consumer culture theory. She talks about identity as the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves that are negotiated and constructed by our people. Right. So our identities are not these... We're not solo agents in this world. We're a part of a system. You know, so much of our identity is actually inherited. It comes to us early. How, how mutable is it? You plant seeds. <laughs> and and it's, it's interesting because like that is quite the metaphor for, for culture. You know, uh, the early iterances of culture was used in the sense of agriculture, right? People were planting crops. And in hopes of having uniformity in their crops, they would ensure that they were raised the same way, that they were harvested the same way, they were nurtured the same way. Before long, people started using that language of culture as a way to talk about the nourishing of children, right? The raising of children, being acculturated, so that there's some predictability in what our kids will be, right? So we implant in them beliefs, we implant in them ideology, stories that we tell through folklore, through religion, right? Now, the thing is that once we are outside of the curated environment that is our family, our small towns, our, our stronghold communities, and we start to bump into other people with different ideas, we go, I never heard that before. That's interesting. And that's when we start taking inventory of the things that we were introduced to as children. So this sort of shifting nature of meaning over time and through geography, this is the landscape in which businesses find themselves as they try to introduce their ideas by virtue of their products and services. What does it mean to do it well and creatively? I think what's required for businesses who are entering the marketplace in hopes of influencing behavioral adoption it requires, at the very least, meaning congruence. And that is what the brand, the company, the institution, the organization is trying to say, is trying to communicate, is translated in the minds of people in the way it was intended. And that kind of gets to the earlier question made, actually the point that you made about what is culture really. My favorite definition of, of culture, which I talk about in the book a lot, is that culture is a realized meaning-making system. Yeah. It's the way by which we translate the world, right? For some, a cow is leather. For others, it's a deity. And for some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all those things, depending on who you are. The world is not objective. It's subjective, right? It, meaning isn't fixed, which means <laughs> that when you are communicating, when you're putting products in the world in an effort for people to adopt them, 
you may be saying one thing and people hear something completely different. And that requires companies, institutions, organizations, entities, leaders, celebrities, and the like to see the world through lenses that are not their own. I think about it this way, like the social world that we live in, it's like a, a basketball game. Social living is like a basketball game. Okay. And if you have nosebleed seats, you see a completely different game than someone with courtside seats. Even though True. you are watching objectively the same game, it's subjectively is translating your mind based on your perspective, your reference point, your point of view, which means that if we companies, institutions, organizations, entities want a better understanding of the world, a more vivid representation of the world, we have to sit in many, 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 many seats. So in other words, it's not about hitting on the word that means cow to every single person. It's about hitting on the group, dare I say the tribe of people who are interested in the idea that you have for whom cow is the word that transcends everything else and means something really important. That's right. You try to talk to people in the language, in the vernacular that's meaningful for them. A friend of mine to wax poetic, go on and on about this show that he's watching on, on Paramount Plus. Loves the show. Right. It's like, man, you got to watch it, Marcus. They go, oh, what's the show? They go, Yellowstone, man, it's so good. I go, oh, man, I've seen the ads for that. Not for me. I'm yep. not that kind of like, yep. it's not my kind of show. Right. And he spent 15 minutes explaining to me why this show is for me. And I shouldn't even say he spent 15 minutes. I should say that I gave him 15 minutes of my time <laughs> to explain this show for me. And now right. guess what? You do not, you do not watch Yellowstone. I started watching Yellowstone. And, and it had nothing to do with the ads. And I love right. Kevin Costner as much as the next guy. Right, right. Like, right. And nothing to do with the ads. It had everything to do with my people. And that's, that's what I think is important for businesses to understand, that we are in the business of getting people to adopt behavior. And what gets people to move? Nothing gets people to move as predictably, as sustainably, as people. I think it's fair to say that just about everybody listening to the show, whether you're a marketer trying to sell a pair of tennis shoes, or whether you're a business leader trying to get a team to galvanize around an idea, or whether you're just me trying to convince my children they really should brush their teeth every night, right? We all want to figure out how to make sure that your best friend loves our idea so completely that they will communicate it to you for 15 minutes, right? So how do we begin to do that? Well, that's kind of why I wrote the book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because because I, I realized that whether you have marketer in your title or not, we're all marketers. Like The job of marketing is to get people to do something. Don't drink this, drink that. Don't go here, go there. Don't buy his shoes, buy my shoes. Don't hire him, hire me. We're all invested in getting people to adopt behavior. So how do we do that? I would argue that we do that by leveraging the most influential vehicle known to mankind or humankind. That is culture. First, we start with what do we believe? How do we see the world? I've been trying to get my kids to eat peas forever. There's always like, Georgia, you're going to eat these peas because I'm telling you to do it. She's like, whatever, I'm not going to. And then it's like bribery. If you eat this, I'll give you that. And it's not unlike what marketers do too. Mm -hmm. You know, 
if you sign up for this, we'll give you $5 Amazon gift card. Like it's yep. not un, un, unlike that, right? But those things don't move people predictably and sustainably. The idea isn't about how do I motivate people to move? It's how do I inspire people to move? Right. And, and so we start with, what do we believe? Who, what's our culture as an organization, institution and the like? Who sees the world like we do? Because those people are the most, the people that are most inclined to move. Right? Mm -hmm. I call them the collective of the willing, right? They're just much more tolerance. There's just, there's much more opportunity. When we hear it from our people. So you know what I do with my daughter now? What is Georgia, that? To get her EPs. I say, we're Collinses. And this is what we do. Are you a Collins? If you're not a Collins, <laughs> if you're a Collins, you eat peas. Look, mom's eating peas. Ivy's eating peas. Daddy's eating peas. Does that work? Come on, George. I bet it does. It does work. Now, she don't go ham on it. She, don't, she won't eat all of it. But she eats way more than she would have before because she does it as an act of social solidarity to be one of us. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back with more from Dr. Marcus Collins. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Marcus and I are both sort of in the middle of our lives and our careers. We're not right at the beginning, and hopefully we're nowhere near the end. And in the time that we've been working, the internet has basically changed everything. It's changed the way that media and advertising work. I mean, think about it. When I was 25, most people still got their news from the evening news, like on TV. Now the internet has disintermediated everything to the point where it can be hard to figure out where people are to even talk to them. So I asked Marcus about how technology impacts culture. What technology does, what it's always done, and it's extend human behavior, right? And I would say, following that line of logic, that social networking platforms are real-life extensions of our real-life social networks. They extend what we do, but they're still bound by humanity. 
And what these extensions provide is they provide more prevalence, they provide more salience, and they provide speed. Like I remember as you know, coming of age, particularly uh, in middle school, Friday mornings were going to be the best conversations ever at school. Why? Because we all watched Martin Thursday night and then the Cosby show Thursday night. So we all came with the jokes, whatever the thing was, like it was going to be lit on Friday. So the cultural production that we were taking in provided us new lexicon, new behaviors, new artifacts that we would then bring to school the next day and enter the discourse and decide what it means, decide what's acceptable behavior for people like us. So networking platforms today, technology writ large today in the digital world has enabled that discourse to happen all the time. Not only that, the the number of inputs of exogenous shocks to the system are far greater than they ever were. So therefore, we're having more conversations and the window, the media windows become shorter and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because that very thing. Is it new to humanity? Absolutely not. Does it happen at a faster clip and a higher fidelity? Oh, 1000%. And that has its benefits and its negative consequences as well. I was going to say, you keep using this word, exogenous shocks to the system. That's essentially the stuff that really irks me. It's like over and over and over again being provoked. Um, I would think that that's actually not that great for our sort of ability to establish belonging. I mean, that is a, a, a way for me to establish that I do not belong over and over and over again, leaving me at a place where it might be harder to figure out what I belong to. I think that's fair. I think I think that's fair. Um, but I think what happens is that when these things outside of what is normal take place, they create opportunities for us to connect with our people and sort of fortify the bonds that connect us, right? Uh, I write about this in the book, as you know, um, last year at the Oscars, Will Smith slaps Chris Rock. And we're all like, what just happened there? And- when it took place, I was just as shocked as anybody else. And immediately I was super excited because as a researcher, I was going to watch America make meaning of what just happened. Right. An exogenous shock to the system just took place. And now we are all provoked. We are all pushed to now decide, is this acceptable behavior? It gives me an excuse to reach out and say, have you seen this? Yeah. I have, I have friends who live in different states. We all went to business school together. And the way that we communicate 99.9% .9 of the time is via a, a group chat. And you know what we post in that group chat? Just memes. I was going to say. <laughs> just memes. We post memes and like articles of things that we saw on Reddit or crazy things on TikTok. That's it, right? And what's happening as we post these things, we go, oh, that's crazy. Oh, I cannot believe that. That's wild. These people out there mind. We're essentially casting a vote saying that, oh yeah, we're friends. Yep. Yeah, we're close. Now, the flip side to that, because the knife cuts both ways, is that if you are with people who don't see the world the way you do, then in every one of these exogenous shocks to the system become evidence on that we're really not close. So moving so much more quickly allows us to more completely demarcate our identities individually. I wonder, is it a threat to our overall, does it become a threat to our ability to make commonly understood meaning out of what's going on around us? Well, that's a really great question. And I think that what it does is that it, it helps us be 
more what we were designed to be. Like well, anthropologists would argue that we weren't meant to be in big sort of uh, massive societies. We we're meant to be in smaller tribes and smaller groups. Dunbar refers to the Dunbar number, the cognitive upper limit that you know the brain can actually process uh, and, and manage social relationships. So we're meant to be in small groups. And that was the case for centuries, right? Until the Industrial Revolution, we started going into big towns, big big cities to work. We started bumping into new ideas and started to amass greater, greater society. So in a lot of ways, you say it's more human just to be in, in smaller groups. Now, that said, it also creates great polarity. But I don't think that those two things have to be mutually exclusive. I don't think that you can either be in small groups and find safety or be in big groups um, and not be safe. Instead, I think that what it requires, just like all technology uh, uh, necessitates, is that we need new rules for new tech. We need new rules for new ways of living. And the way I see it is that if we can all come to the understanding of this truth, that there is no objective truth, right? That the world is subjective, not objective. Then we can say to ourselves, the way I see the world and the way I make meaning of the world through my cultural frames may be true to me, but it's not true to everybody else. And someone else who abides by different cultural frames, the world it translates to them differently, right? I may have nosebleed seats. They have courtside seats. And we're all watching the same game. And as long as your truth doesn't mean my oppression, all good, right? And, and it requires an, a radical sense of empathy for us to be mature enough as a society to navigate the world with this technology. Right. Um, I... Well, I'm just going to ask it. Do you do you think that capitalism is the right framework for being able to do that while eliminating oppression? That that's a tough one. <laughs> My gut will say no, because the ethos of capitalism feels like a zero sum game, and when it's a zero sum game, it's hard to be empathetic when you are winning. In fact, it's actually hard to be empathetic when you're losing, right? When it's a zero-sum game, I am implicitly uh, incentivized to be in competition with you on everything. So whatever you have means I don't have it. The way that I think about it, Marcus, and um, you can you can blow a hole in this if you like, but I think capitalism is the best that we have discovered so far through history, but that uh, capitalism has worked best here in this country when it is tempered by a strong, flourishing democracy and policymakers who can keep up with technology changes such that they can stay ahead of it. I think that is totally fair. Totally fair. It's not until those things, until democracy seems to be at loggerheads. <laughs> with capitalism <laughs> <laughs> that we start to get problems, right? Because democracy um, means that I can't make more money. Then we say, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to value money, capital over democracy. And that's when I think as a country, uh, just like any society, that we have to live by conviction. What do we believe? 
Like, how do we see the world? And living by conviction means that even if it hurts, even if it means I'm not gonna, I'm gonna lose out, um, I'm gonna do what I believe is right because of my beliefs. But I feel like we have seen a number of brands um, act in ways that are really ham-handed this summer around their beliefs and standing for their beliefs. You talk in the book about Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Um, and what struck me there was that like Nike lost sales. Um, and ultimately, that decision that Nike made um, was an incredible branding decision that, from a long-term perspective, probably really served it. I am gay, so I am following this very closely. It has real mm -hmm. material interest for my family here. I'm watching brands make decisions around their LGBTQ consumers right now in a very haphazard way, sort of very fearful way. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if you were in any of these executive boardrooms, let's take um, Budweiser with its transgender influencer earlier this spring, what direction might you have? <laughs> um, it's paradoxical, the Bud Light issue. So Bud Light was actually a client of mine for quite a while. So I worked on Bud Light back in 20, 2012, 2013, and 2014. And then again, they were clients in another agency. And in those years, working with Bud Light, I actually did marriage equality work for Bud Light. Like I'd read ads about marriage equality because our clients said, this community matters to us. And we have been supporting this community for decades. I read that in your book, by been, the way, and was like, surprise, I had no idea. I know. And they've been, and the community has been supporting the brand for decades. So when the Dylan Mulvaney partnership happened, I said, oh, of course Bud Light would do that. They've been doing this forever. In fact, they have the receipts. Unlike other companies who jump in on what seems to be a low-risk opportunity, marketing opportunity, uh, that don't have the receipts, haven't been doing it historically, Bud Light's got the receipts. And when the backlash started to happen, I think it was like, Bud Light, break the receipts out. There, there's a literal picture of uh, Kid Rock who shot up Bud Light saying, bleep those guys, Right. drinking a Bud Light next to a drag queen. It's like, oh, but it was cool back then, Kid Rock, but not anymore. Well, who's changed? You've changed, not us. But Bud Light didn't do that. Instead, Bud Light flinched. They got some pushback and they said, oh, well, we don't want to offend anyone. We're just a beer. We want everybody to have a good time. So of course the LGBTQ plus community is like, excuse me, <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah. What about us? Mm -hmm. And what Bud Light did was try to appease bullies, the haters. And in doing so, they alienated the marginalized, the people that they had such a long relationship with for decades, thinking that, look, if we just sort of play in the middle, we'll be just fine. And the middle... The middle was like, I don't want nothing to smoke, y'all. I'll just drink a Modelo. <laughs> like, I don't want to be involved with this at all. And, 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 and that is the myth of the middle. They're not the first to go watch your movie. They're not the first to download your album. They're not the first to do anything. They're instead looking around them to see what other people like them have done. Right. Therefore, if you want to move the crowd, if you want to move the population at scale, you start – with the collective of the willing. 
and those people go convince others. But since Bud Light alienated both sides, I mean, he called the the bullies. They say that you know these are frat boys. Like we're supposed to do with these guys. They you know, it was it was pejorative language around those right. folks, and then right. left the other community, the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community, high and dry. And as a result, you fall flat. Right. So what what's the takeaway? It's not about brand purpose. The only way to have conviction is to willing to stand for something. That is, I'm going to stand for something even if I'm the only one. Marcus, thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us. This was a great conversation. I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks so much for having me. That was Dr. Marcus Collins. His book, For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be, is out now. What Marcus said about culture is really sticking with me. It's this way in which we make meaning out of things around us by constantly establishing our relationships with other people. We're trying to answer a couple of questions here. Can I trust you? Do I belong to you? I also appreciated Marcus's take on tech, this idea of exogenous shocks to the system, things that happen that we all react to collectively. Tech is speeding these systems up, and that can feel really polarizing. But look, if there's only one idea you take away from our time together, let it be this. Marcus reminds us there is no objective truth. The world is subjective. If we can all accept this, get a little bit more comfortable with it, well, then we can probably figure out how to be nicer to each other. Let's talk about culture and meaning-making at this week's office hours. I'll go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, along with our producer, Sarah Storm. If you're not sure where to find the link, drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com, and we'll help you out. Oh, and there's an interesting conversation going on this week in the group. That's Hello Monday's group on LinkedIn. We've been talking a lot recently on the show about growth mindsets and how we learn to learn. Listener April Federico, and thank you, April, for bringing this to us. She brought us some instructions on stepping out of our comfort zones, quite literally. She even has graphics. If you haven't joined our group yet, search us out on LinkedIn. It's closed, but let me know you're a listener and I'll approve you right away. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer always gives our show meaning. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>